0: Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goli, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing congenital hypothyroidism. We're recording remotely due to the ongoing COVID pandemic. We're joined today by Dr. Shomo Adhikari, Associate Professor of Pediatric Endocrinology at UT Southwestern and Medical Director of the Endocrinology Clinic. Hello. Hi, Dr. Adhikari. This is Nita. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, how are you? Good. Thank you. So we can go ahead and get started. So um, congenital hypothyroidism is the most common congenital endocrine disorder and the most common preventable cause of intellectual disability. To start off with, can you remind us of the functions of the thyroid gland and the physiology and pathophysiology of congenital hypothyroidism?
1: Yeah, the thyroid gland is... uh Small butterfly-shaped gland that sits in the front of your neck. It really its main function is that it takes up iodine from the things that we eat, and it uses that iodine together with a handful of other things in our body to make thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone we also call thyroxin or T4, um, and thyroid hormone plays for babies and for children a really important role in normal growth and development. Um, If your thyroid gland hasn't developed properly, then it doesn't produce enough T4 for the body to grow and develop normally. Like many other glands in the body, your thyroid gland is under the control of another gland that sits at the base of our brain called our pituitary gland. Uh, Many people refer to the pituitary as your quote-unquote master gland uh, because of the level of influence it exerts over many other glands in your body. Uh, in the case of the thyroid gland, if the amount of T4 in your body is too low, your pituitary has an ability to sense that and release a signal, in this case, thyroid stimulating hormone, to stimulate a normal thyroid gland to produce more T4. When those levels get high enough, when the, t- when the pituitary senses that your T4 levels are in target ranges, then your TSH production drops off and both TSH and T4 levels hover within quote-unquote normal ranges. In most um, hypothyroid babies, your thyroid gland has just not properly developed and thus it can't make appropriate levels of T4. As a result, your pituitary gland has to work extra hard to stimulate your thyroid gland by producing more and more TSH, um, but often at uh, the with no benefit of that because there's not enough functional tissue to respond to those high levels of TSH to produce what your brain's trying to get the gland to produce.
0: Okay. So there are several potential etiologies of congenital hypothyroidism, including thyroid agenesis, like you mentioned, hormone synthesis defects, and receptor defects. Can you walk us through some of the most common causes we might see?
1: Yeah. I mean, worldwide. So in the U.S., I think you mentioned... um, two or three of the more common ones that anyone is most likely to run into. Worldwide, I think it's worthwhile to at least mention that iodine deficiency remains a common cause of uh, neonatal hypothyroidism. Thankfully, we don't see that near as much in the U.S. anymore. Um, The most common cause that we run into is, as I alluded to, underdevelopment of the thyroid gland, if not frank, Um, agenesis of the thyroid gland. So early in pregnancy, your thyroid gland really forms actually at the base of your brain, and then it migrates to come to rest in its final position in the lower part of your neck where it finishes growing after it's migrated there. Um, Sometimes that process is interrupted, leaving either a small piece of the thyroid gland in its normal location but not fully developed. Sometimes there's a remnant of thyroid tissue that is not even in its normal bed. It's just somewhere along that migratory pathway, but it hasn't made it all the way down to the lower neck and if it's out of position, it almost invariably doesn't form and doesn't function as it normally would be expected to do. Um, or on occasion, we run into less common but important to recognize causes of hypothyroidism, which can include no true thyroid pathology if the cause is secondary, meaning TSH deficiency or pituitary pathology can cause hypothyroidism as well that can present in the neonatal period, Um, or even less commonly, um, any of a number of enzyme deficiencies that are involved in normal thyroid hormone production. If you're deficient in any of those enzymes, then you might apparently have normal anatomy, but still low levels of the end product, which is the actual thyroid hormone.
0: Okay. And since you mentioned this, I am curious i just have a quick question about the iodine deficiency um when in the u.s did we start supplementing um salt and other foods with iodine
1: oh that's a good question i don't know that timeline in history off the top of my head that (laughs) sounds like a great thing for um me to know but i don't know
0: okay i was just curious because i wasn't sure um like how the rates of hypothyroidism were affected by that i mean like you mentioned yeah
1: no absolutely i you know uh for better or for worse, a lot of my experience with um, uh, Understanding the history of hypothyroidism is kind of starting in the 90s and mm-hmm. later when Texas newborn screening program started, and you know everything about our approach has been very consistent since then. But some of the longer term history and when things changed, I'm not as familiar with. Okay, okay.
0: And then since you mentioned it, so with newborn screening now we can diagnose early and for the most part treat most cases early, um, which can lead to better outcomes. Um, how common is congenital hypothyroidism now? And then, how common is it for it to be diagnosed on newborn screening versus later, um, or potentially missed on newborn screening? Conversely,
1: yeah. The um, first off, in you know, in the state of Texas, newborn screening for hypothyroidism has been around since the um, early 1990s. Um, we have done screening in the state of Texas in one of really three commonly accepted ways that are practiced by different states across the U.S. We do a primary T4 screen, uh, meaning every baby that's born gets a T4 level measured on a spot of dried whole blood. Um, and then every day, the lowest 10% of the batch of T4 levels is gets a double check of the T4 in addition to a TSH measured. So we do a dual screen only on the worst, if you will, 10% of each day's batch that's one way of doing the screening. Another way of doing a screening is to check a T4 and a TSH on every sample, and then a third, yet a third way of doing the screening is to do a primary TSH screen where um, every sample gets a TSH drawn. There's advantages and disadvantages to all of those, um, whether it be from a cost or sensitivity or specificity perspective. Um, the commonly cited numbers are for congenital hypothyroidism that it has a worldwide prevalence depending on the region and depending on the population of about 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 4,000 in Texas were probably on the lower side, or sorry, the higher side of that, about a 1 in 2,000 Some in some data sets. It's even cited as 1 in 1,500 um, prevalence in newborns born in the state of Texas. So lately, with in the last several years, the thresholds for detection um, getting more and more sensitive we have picked up on somewhere between two to four hundred cases—sorry, two to three hundred cases—of hypothyroidism by newborn screening every year. Not all of those are true permanent, durable congenital hypothyroidism, but two to three hundred cases per year, some of which might later be weaned off thyroid supplements.
0: Okay. Um, and how would we expect a baby with congenital hypothyroidism to present?
1: So the irony of it is that, you know, the thing we stress to trainees who come through our clinic is, most babies with congenital hypothyroidism look like perfectly healthy babies, and that's the reason that we have newborn screening to begin with, I guess you could argue, is that the physical symptoms when present can certainly be helpful and can help to raise your index of suspicion about maybe a preliminary positive or preliminarily concerning newborn screening result that you don't have confirmatory testing on yet. Um, but. A mother's placenta actively transports T4 to the fetus. So babies with true significant, you know, even thyroid agenesis can still be born looking fairly healthy um, because of their ability to rely on the mother all throughout gestation. Um, But when babies do have symptoms, the classically cited symptoms tend to be I mean, amongst other things, you know, these are parents who will walk in at two or three weeks of life, especially mothers who've had children previously and say, you know, he or she is such a good baby that she sleeps all the time, uh, not very fussy. Um, If anything, I have to wake him up to nurse him a little bit. He doesn't really ask for much. He's the easiest baby I've ever had. And then we put them on treatment, and they are telling us a few weeks later that, you know, the baby's crying more and doing all the things you'd expect a healthy term baby to do, Um, but it was a little bit masked by the presence of the hypothyroidism previous to that um other symptoms a hoarse cry some feeding problems um some constipation some degree of puffiness around the face um sometimes you'll hear of babies having a bigger tongue than one would expect to see um the fontanelles can be pretty patent in a baby with significant hypothyroidism some can even be a little bit hypotonic um and then they can have a little bit of prolonged jaundice so jaundice that persists beyond um, the age at which you would expect it to resolve um, in an otherwise healthy baby with no cause for elevated bilirubin levels.
0: Okay. So that gives us an idea of what to watch out for, but it sounds like, again, like you mentioned, sometimes we might not see that except for the newborn screen. So then if we do get an abnormal newborn screen, what would our next steps be for these babies?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously, taking a second to think through who is this that I'm getting this result on, and did they, in fact, have anything on history that... You know, were they in fact a little bit jaundiced? And we went through all the precautions and um, normal advice for a baby who's dealing with that, or were they gaining weight a little bit slowly? And we talked about all the things that we should keep an eye on over the course of the next few weeks, meaning taking 30 seconds to think about were there any clinical signs or symptoms present, just to flavor your pretest probability a little bit of what's the likelihood that this is a false positive screen versus a true significant signal of concern on the newborn screen. Um, But then all babies with a abnormal newborn screen for congenital hypothyroidism deserve uh, T4 and a TSH, and really in 2020, in most places that most clinicians will practice, it's probably worth doing a TSH and a free T4 so as to eliminate those somewhat rare but still occasionally problematic um, binding globulin deficiencies that will lead to uh, lab abnormalities but really no significant clinical concern um, that you can Essentially, rule out by doing the free by measuring the free hormone levels instead of the total hormone levels. So, a TSH and free T four for all babies with an abnormal newborn screen for CH. Okay,
0: and then would you recommend that the um, primary care pediatrician or the person seeing this baby start treatment immediately as well, or wait till they see endocrinology?
1: That's a, I mean, that's a great question. I think for the. Um, majority of babies, because treatment is fairly simple and because there is a sense of urgency to the need to treat from a timing perspective, and frankly, because we as pediatric endocrinologists are so rare. I mean, if you're a pediatrician in the DFW area, maybe your, your patient that you're seeing in your office can get into our office the next day. But if you're out in the middle of nowhere and your nearest pediatric endocrinologist is 300 miles away, then, you know, all those things need to be factored into the equation as well. But on, for the most part, if a pediatrician calls us with a clear-cut diagnosis of congenital hypothyroidism in an infant, then we will encourage them to get the baby started on treatment with um, every intent to hopefully see the family as soon after in our office as we can to make sure that the family has their questions about the condition answered to make sure that they get to hear about all the nuances of managing the condition from us mm-hmm. um, in terms of how is the medication stored, how is the medication administered, what is, what can they expect in terms of prognosis um, and to just hear from us something that they hopefully have already heard from their pediatrician about just what is the condition what's the importance of treatment, what are the possible risks of under treatment and mm. all of that
0: well, so um, to kind of get into that, what how do you usually counsel families during that first visit in terms of um, risk of under-treatment, appropriate treatment. And then earlier you had mentioned that not all babies have the permanent durable congenital hypothyroidism, so some might be able to be weaned off treatment. Could you speak to that as well?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of a catch-22, right? Because on the one hand, it's quote-unquote so simple to treat, and yet the consequences of um non-treatment or significant under-treatment can be so significant because you're talking about some potentially durable permanent neurologic deficits if the under-treatment is really lengthy or if a child goes untreated completely for any significant length of time. So we're not talking typically about, hey, it's important whether you get a baby started on treatment at day eight of life versus day 10 of life. That order of magnitude of difference probably doesn't make much of a difference, but we aim to start everybody on treatment within two weeks of life, ideally, um, certainly by within three weeks of life if we can't do within two weeks of life, um, and those are the orders of magnitude that we're talking about in terms of um, really making a difference in terms of neurologic outcome downstream. If you start a child on treatment at two or three weeks of life, then you have, in all likelihood, the data suggests, given that child with significant congenital hypothyroidism, every opportunity to grow up to be a normally grown and normally developed young child with little, if any, noticeable deficits of growth or development. And that's the biggest piece of the counseling that parents get from us is sort of understanding that look, this is something we want you to understand the severity of, But we also want you to understand that it doesn't have to be a devastating diagnosis because it is imminently treatable um, and there are good medicines to treat it. And the treatment itself is, you know, it's one pill a day or one to two pills a day um, and thus readily administerable even to babies right from when they're very first born.
0: What are the most common um, barriers that you have to babies being appropriately treated, if any?
1: Um, appropriate treatment is a, is an interesting phrase because, you know, on the one hand, um, uh, appropriateness starts with recognizing this importance of early recognition and really jumping on this, uh, as fast as one can when it raises its, you know, concerns in the early neonatal period. So delaying treatment because, oh, it's just, a mild problem, um, and then kids slipping through the cracks is certainly one of the things that we kind of fight against, if you will, in trying to get everybody to understand the importance of early intervention. Um, from a parental perspective, you know, the challenge is, in fact, the catch-22, that you have a perfectly healthy-looking, beautiful newborn baby in front of you with no outward manifestations of illness whatsoever. And parents go through a sense of loss. You know, when mm-hmm. the first time that you learn that there is something wrong, quote unquote, with your beautiful baby, there is a adaptation period of, um, coming to terms with that and coming to accept that. And, uh, everybody responds to that in a slightly different way, but certainly in some cases it's a little bit harder to, um, get somebody to uh, understand and appreciate the potential seriousness of not taking something that they can't see, which is levels of oh, hormone in the body um, being really low uh, as seriously as we need them to take it to really um, achieve optimal treatment goals.
0: Yeah, that's that would be tough. Um, I'm sure there's some parents who go through a denial period as well, who um, have difficulty processing the diagnosis. I mean, as with any other diagnosis of a newborn
1: or Yeah, a little child. bit of human nature involved in all of that, and I don't blame any parents who struggles with that a little bit. I think yeah. it's, you know, our job to help them navigate those waters and come to terms with, um, again, that dichotomy of it's so simple to treat, but the consequences of not treating can be so significant.
0: Absolutely. And then um, just as an anecdote, when I was in training, I actually cared for an elementary school-aged patient who unfortunately had untreated congenital hypothyroidism. Um, The child had significant developmental delay, was nonverbal, not toilet trained. Thankfully, we did get the child on treatment, um, and they did have improvement in their developmental milestones but were still delayed for their age. In terms of longer term, can you discuss, you know, long-term consequences of untreated congenital hypothyroidism?
1: Well, you're describing something that thankfully we don't see much of, which is probably what makes it memorable, um, is the rareness of it all. Um, Because of the uh, presence of, you know, practically universal newborn screening and because of the availability of a fairly cheap treatment for children who are affected Um, And because of, you know, the iodine that's available in diets in terms of just diminishing the overall prevalence of the condition in the first place, um, we don't see much of what you just described, thankfully, because those are the most significant consequences of untreated severe congenital hypothyroidism, which is the significant growth delays you can have, you know, nine, 11-year-old children who still look like they're four and five if they have true significant congenital hypothyroidism that's never been picked up on and never been appropriately treated. Um, and then, you know, probably even worse than the physical manifestations there are the significant permanent risks to neurodevelopmental potential and neurocognitive potential, um, the loss of IQ that can result from Months or years of untreated hypothyroidism is something you can never fully recover from. In fact, we you know don't harp on this too much, but for babies with the most severe forms of congenital hypothyroidism, um, even early treatment, for the most part, we you know focus on the fact that that normalizes developmental potential, but there is a little bit of a hint in the literature of look the babies with the most severe forms of disease is there some difference in comparing them to their siblings in terms of IQ scores and such things um that one can never fully make up um sometimes
0: hmm. so really reinforces the the need to follow up on those newborn screens and and act appropriately okay
1: yeah and we will um you know in the early part in the early part of our getting to know these families, you know, lay out a roadmap not only of here's what you need to do, um, here's how you treat, but then here's the monitoring protocol as well, which is pretty intense in the first year of life, meaning the first three or four months of life will follow these babies' levels uh, all, about monthly and then about every two months over the course of the first year of life and then gradually less and less as they get um, older and older.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you think um, would be useful for our listeners to know that we haven't gotten the chance to talk about yet?
1: Um, can I end with two, I guess, endocrine pearls that are important to us who do PD endo and uh, just to you know minimize the risk of these things slipping through the cracks, I guess. Um, sure. We talked very superficially about you know the role that pituitary deficiencies can play in um, the discussion around neonatal hypothyroidism, that it's not always a thyroid problem, especially in a state like Texas where our primary screen is T4 levels. So we can, through our newborn screen, occasionally pick up on cases of secondary hypothyroidism or pituitary deficiency, meaning TSH deficiency as well. So I'd say two things about that from a primary care provider's perspective, just on the off chance one is ever in position of having to you know, be uh, an early decision maker in the sequence of events. If you ever have a baby born with um, a uh, diagnosis of hypothyroidism that leads to a uh, diagnosis of secondary hypothyroidism, meaning TSH deficiency, um, then the risk, of course, is everything we just talked about. But in addition, you have to screen the baby for every other pituitary function and whether there's anything else deficient other than TSH that's um, been found to be deficient through the newborn screen. So converse to everything you've heard me say for much of this, which is hurry up and treat, hurry up and treat, time is of the essence, In a child with TSH deficiency, you never want to treat a baby with thyroid supplements until you're absolutely certain that the child is also not ACTH deficient, meaning that they are making adequate amounts of cortisol because treating hypothyroidism in a child with concurrent adrenal insufficiency um, can induce an adrenal crisis. So you never want to be the cause of doing any harm, obviously, and that's something to just kind of be aware about. And then sort of a peripheral pearl, I guess, in relation to Pituitary deficiencies and what else might be wrong and such. If you ever have a child born with a, um, you know, micropenis, which can also be present in a child with low thyroid hormone levels, TSH deficiency, gonadotropin deficiency, uh, micropenis concurrently present. Um, even before you call us, before you call endo, um, check their blood sugar. Meaning, we probably have some time to figure out why their why the boy's genitals are small. But in the meantime, it's quite possible that the child's blood sugars have been low for maybe even hours already, even as a neonate. So you want to catch and intervene to remedy that right away.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's good for us to know. To end today's episode, do you have any other advice for our listeners while they care for newborns?
1: No, not much else beyond everything we just talked about. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, jump in and join you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.